Please be seated. Failed to introduce myself uh, earlier in the assembly, uh, especially for those that uh, we've never met, and um, this may be your first time either with us in person or first time stream. My name is Mark. I'm one of the ministry uh, uh, guys here at Mac, one of the guys on staff. And if we've never had an opportunity to meet, I'd love to meet you today. And as you go through these doors right here, there'll be a green wall to my right, your left. And uh, I'm going to be standing out in front of that after the assembly this morning. And I'd love to have the opportunity to get to know you, to meet you, to shake your hand, give you a hug, or, or pray with you, or whatever it is uh, you might want to talk about. We can talk about it. But that's where I'm going to be, and I would love to have this opportunity to meet with you this morning. would also invite you at this time to pull out the insert in the bulletin. It is our sermon outline. On one side of it is are the sermon notes that you can use as we go through this message. This is going to be our sixth message in the series Growing in Grace. On the back side of it is the MPG. MPG stands for uh, Memorize. There's going to be a text for you to memorize. The P stands for Pray or Prayer. Uh, We're going to give you something to pray this week. And then the Glorify section is something that has to do with the message or something that you can do in the community or in the church family that's practical in a way that you glorify God with your life. And so that's how we want to take the sermon a little bit further down the road. And as I mentioned Uh, We are in this series. Today's the sixth lesson, and uh, next week we are going to take a break from the Grace series as we're going to talk about the resurrection. And again, uh, I would challenge you to bring somebody as we're going to talk about the core message of the gospel, that in the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, everything changes. Not just your individual life, but the lives of people, the lives of of, of all humans who accept the gospel and trust God, have their sins washed away in this relationship that begins with the Spirit living inside of us as we are transformed and discipled into the likeness of Jesus. We begin to be salt and light in the community. And even if you have not yet placed membership with us or become a disciple of Jesus, I would challenge you to bring somebody as well as we talk next week about the message of the resurrection. We are talking about grace, which is one of the most, it's not just one of the most beautiful words in the entire world, but it is just one of the best words that you're going to find in the Bible, the word grace. And it's based, this whole series is based on this passage at the end of the Christian scriptures over in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. And we can probably say it together. You can close your eyes and we'll say it all together. Or if you don't know it, it's up here on the screens and you can say it with us. But 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 18 says this, But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We grow in grace. Now, there's a story, it's an old, old story, it's an intriguing story uh, that takes place in the country of India. There is a holy man in the middle of a monsoon, middle of the flood, who spies a scorpion that's about to be uh, swept away in the storm, is going to perish because of the flood. And he reaches down to, to lift up the scorpion, and you can imagine what happens, right? When the scorpion gets onto the man's head, what does the scorpion do? Stings him, Right? A passerby sees all of this that's happening, and he yells at the holy man. He says, you fool, don't you know it's the nature of a scorpion to sting? And the holy man turns to the passerby, and he says, and my nature is to save. 
And should I change my nature because the scorpion refuses to change his? That story illustrates a really important truth about God, and it's this truth right here. It is God's nature to reach down before we look up for rescue. It is God's nature to reach down before we look up for rescue. I want to draw your attention to a passage in Romans chapter 5, beginning with verse 10, and I want you to see just how this works out. Paul writes, you see, at just the right time, when we were still, what's that yellow word right there? Powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still what? Sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's... Isn't that an interesting word? I mean, right here, Paul could have said a number of things, right? He could have said because of our bad decision-making, because of, you know, because we made some bad decisions, because, you know, we maybe were not in our right mind when we made these decisions. He uses the word enemies, which doesn't mean that we were just broken or were faulty somehow. There is something about the nature of sin that once it gets inside of us, it turns us against God. That while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? A summary statement of Romans 5, verses 6 through 10 is this. Grace is not God's response to the human plea. It was while we were still sinners, while we were enemies, right? We had not turned ourselves towards God, that grace comes into being. Grace is not God's response to the human plea, but it's God's response to an enemy's need. Which means that grace is God's idea. Grace is God's idea. Grace is not a fallback position when all else fails. Grace is not plan B. And grace is certainly not the, the daisy game. Remember the daisy game? You'd pick a daisy and you'd pluck those, those petals off one at a time. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. That is not grace. God is not capricious. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19 says, The reason that we love is because he what? First loved us. Now, in the passage that Sergio read so beautifully for us just a couple of minutes ago, Galatians chapter 2, we're going to see three aspects of the history of grace. And those three aspects are this, the lesson of grace history, the Christ gift in history, and the historical danger to grace. Let's begin with the lesson of grace history. We're going to begin with this verse that's found in Galatians 2, verses 15 and 16. Paul writes, We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, 
not justified, that is, not found righteous, not found acceptable by the works of the law. And he repeats that in the very next chapter. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 10, he says, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything, not just a couple of things, but does not continue to do everything that is written in the book of the law. That's actually found in Deuteronomy chapter 27 and verse 26. Paul is going to say the exact same thing in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, when he says, No one is going to be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of what? The law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Now, friends, if, if you're investigating the Christian faith or you're new to the Christian faith, you may be wondering, what in the world is Paul talking about? The, the, the lesson of the history of grace is this, that humans cannot earn their way back into God's presence. That's the lesson of the grace history. Humans cannot earn their way back into God's presence. They cannot talk their way back into it. They can't, they can't merit their way back into it. They can't work their way back into it. It is impossible. But that doesn't mean that we don't stop trying. As impossible as it is, it doesn't mean that we stop trying, which again tells us a little bit about the nature of sin. There is in sin the introduction into our life of a, of a, of a level, depending on the person, a certain level of dysfunctionality. Dysfunctionality, or a, a dysfunctional situation is one in which you cannot be honest. And the way that sin brings that dysfunctionality into our own life is that it blinds us to our own sin. In other words, we really have a hard time admitting that there are some things that are not so great about us. And not only does it introduce a degree of dysfunctionality, but it also introduces a, a degree of insanity into our lives. What is our definition of insanity? Doing the same thing over and over and over and over and over again, and yet we expect a different return. We don't stop trying to earn our way back into God's good presence. And I'll give you two examples of that. Remember in Genesis chapter 1-11 through 11, we talked about this is, this is an introduction to the creation of the world and that God did it all. He created man and woman, and yet it's also how sin and death were introduced into the world. And so in Genesis chapter 3, we have distrust in the garden with Adam and Eve and the serpent and the forbidden fruit. And we go from eating a piece of forbidden fruit to homicide. That's the very next chapter. Cain kills Abel. And the homicide turns to homicides, plural, just from eating a forbidden piece of fruit. We become that corrupt with Lamech bragging to his wife that a young man had injured him. And so he killed him. And that goes to the place where God all of a sudden is regretting in his heart that he made human beings because the inclination, the thought life of their heart all the time was nothing but evil. And he, tried, he reboots the earth with the flood. And you got the story of Noah and the flood. And yet the power of sin and, and the power of that corruption is like pollution. It just goes everywhere. It infects and pollutes everything. Even though he's, he's starting rebooting the earth with one, the, the one remaining righteous man, Noah, it's not too long before human beings are at the place again where they are trying to build a tower that will get them into heaven so that they can live with God and be equal to God. And they're confused once again about what it means to be God and what it means to be human. 
And God brings that confusion to bear upon them with confusing the language and spreads them throughout the earth. And I mean, the story is just the same old, same old, again and again and again. Why? Isaiah tells us, we're like sheep. We have gone astray and each of us has turned to our own way. So one example in the Bible is Genesis 1-11. through The second is the, the, the book that when we're reading through the Bible, we get to and we go, oh man, this is going to be a tough slog in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus is actually a very important book in our understanding of grace. In Leviticus, what we have is a manual that was given to Israel to help them stay in relationship with God. It was kind of a do's and a don'ts. It was a manual on how to stay in relationship with God without being destroyed. And it's kind of a complicated book, and there's a lot of detail to it, but it can basically be bro- excuse me, broken down into categories. And the categories are these. You have ceremonial purity regulations and rituals. And basically, this is the way that you live on a day-to-day basis, and it was a way of, of being pure and going into the presence of God. The problem was, it was impossible. I mean, it, you know, anywhere from touching a dead body to natural occurrences in the physicality of the human body to being diagnosed with a skin disease, basically what was being said in the ceremonial ritual purity regulations with the, is that it's impossible to go through life as a fallen human being without breaking one of the regulations and thus not being able to go into the presence of God. Which brings us to the second part of that. So with Leviticus, you get the ceremonial purity rituals, but you also have the sacrifices for sin and for forgiveness. And by the very nature of those sacrifices, it was underscoring that human beings just cannot go into the presence of God because of sin. It underscored that human beings just cannot get that done. And especially with those sacrifices, it was a reminder year after year after year after year that you could not go into the presence of God unless there was the death of an innocent. And the beginning of Leviticus begins with with not just allowing an animal to be taken off and sacrificed, but you had to put your hands on that animal as a, a sign and a reminder that you were, you know, that this was not something that was just going to happen like that, that there, there had to be this death before sin could be forgiven. And that was exactly the point that God was making with both of these. Whether it was the sacrifices uh, for sin and forgiveness, or whether or not it was the ceremonial purity regulations, the point God was making is that on their own, human beings, you and I, We cannot enter back into God's presence. And that is the one point that Paul is making in Galatians 2. That the law reminds us that because of our fallen nature, our sinful nature, we are not what we were created to be. But that's not where the grace history ends. Because in the grace history, there is the Christ gift in history. Now, The God of grace, as we have seen, is a giver of gifts. The God of grace is a giver of gifts. We spent a couple of weeks at the very beginning of this series talking about creation and how before there was even a you and a me, an Adam and an Eve, God 
in His gracious nature, was creating and giving us gifts before we could even enjoy them. And not only was creation a gift, but in a manner of speaking, Torah. The Word of God that was given to Moses on Mount Sinai was considered by the Hebrew nation to be a gift that came to them from God, enabling them to understand God and to get back, you know, to understand how a relationship with God could be had. But the greatest gift was yet to come. In Galatians chapter 4, just two chapters over from our, our uh, text this, this morning, Paul writes, When the t- set time had fully come, God sent His Son. Who is the Son? Who is the Son? Jesus, right? God sent Jesus, born of a woman and under the law. And not only does God send Him to us as a gift... But notice what is said in chapter 1 of Galatians, chapter 2 in Galatians, about the gift of Jesus. He says in verses 3 and 4, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself. It's a language of gift. He's giving. He gave Himself for our sins to rescue us. To rescue us from the present evil age. And then in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, he says this, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and what? Gave Himself for me. The greatest grace gift is the Christ gift. Say that with me. The greatest grace gift is the Christ gift. In Galatians, Paul writes that in Christ we find the rescue. We find the rescue from the endless an exhausting enslavement to sin and all of its ramifications and all of its implications for our lives. He calls it a rescue. That we are being rescued from something that is, is, is trying to overwhelm us and to take our life. And he's reaching down before we're even looking up for rescue. He is reaching down to rescue us. What does it mean to be rescued? To be rescued is to be saved from a no-win situation. That from the standpoint of the one that's needing to be rescued, salvation looks impossible. That unless something happens that's outside of my control, this is going to end very badly. To be rescued is to be no longer stuck, to be no longer adrift, to no longer be marooned. Rescue flips the narrative from certain death and from certain disaster and from certain defeat to a complete victory. Rescue comes as a power to those that are powerless in that moment. And this is why Paul writes in Galatians 2, and this is, um, this is a, a, a version of that text that has been translated by a, a, a great modern-day uh, New Testament scholar by the name of John Barclay. He writes this, We know that a person is not considered righteous, that is, of good standing, before God through observing the Mosaic law, except through trust in Christ. And we have put our trust in Christ so as to be considered righteous in that way. Now the word trust is an important word sometimes in some of our other different versions, translations. It is the word believe. But I think it's not just believing something to be true as a sort of this intellectual consent to something that we hope to be true and we believe it to be true. But the word trust 
is something a little bit different. I mean, Paul is going to talk just a couple of verses later about the trust of Abraham that we talked about in Genesis chapter 15, which is more than just believing something to be true. He's looking at his own body. He's looking at the wife of Sarah, and he trusts God, knowing that his body and her body are dead, to bring a child. That's the only way it's going to happen. He's trusting God to make it true, and it's credited to him as righteousness. Trust is a word that implies dependence upon. It it implies relationship. You know what trust means? Trust means giving up control, as in handing your son, uh, when he's a senior in high school, the keys of the car when you know there's ice on the road and there's these big snow banks and he's going out of town. You hand him the keys and say, I trust you to do the right thing. You're giving up control to the carpool car, right? <laughs> trust in Christ is the acknowledgement that the only thing that counts is Christ. Trust in, in this verse says, the one thing I need is not in me. The one thing I I desperately need is not in me, it's not in you, but it is in someone else. And I'm depending on Him for that one thing. I'm trusting Christ's righteousness. I'm, I'm counting on His acceptability before God, His acceptableness. I don't even know if that's a word, but you know what I'm saying. I'm I'm. I'm leaning and trusting and depending on His being accepted by God to become my acceptableness before God. Acceptability is something to be received. It's something to be received. It's not something that we earn. And although that sounds pretty great, it's more difficult than it would appear. Trust is not easy, is it? Which leads us to the historical danger to grace. Now, we can talk about grace in the intellectual spheres and, you know, talk about it in terms of definitions, you know, that I'm relying on on God's grace to save me. It's not what I do, that it's God's goodness for my good. But there is a historical danger to grace. And he says in verse 21, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. The danger is that we can sometimes in this world encounter situations and ways of thinking and ways of behaving that make it as if Christ died for nothing. The danger to grace is modifying grace to make it more palatable. That I'm, I'm doing my part because there's no such thing as a free lunch. But then Christ died for nothing. There are versions of this. You do everything you can, and then Christ does the rest. Wrong. Christ does it all. We trust and depend on what it is that Christ has accomplished. Or, Some version goes like this. I need to get my life together. I need to straighten out a certain area. I need to make some decisions in my life before becoming a Christian. Wrong. That is just the lie that is keeping you from doing what you need to do for the greatest blessing. You know what the greatest offer a human being will ever receive in their life? 
It's not to win the lottery. It's not the publishing clearinghouse, you know, that check $7,000 a week for the rest. You know what the best offer a human being is ever going to get? It's entrance into the kingdom of God. And remember, we're not saved by, by uh, uh, you know, the gospel is not that we're saved. The gospel is that we are saved by grace. Grace is not grace plus something else equals salvation. That is a modification of, of grace and Christ died for nothing, if that's what we embrace. Grace plus something else is not grace. It's Jesus dying in vain. And quite frankly, church, this is the backstory, the background to Galatians chapter 2. You'll remember in what Sergio read, there's this little story. Peter comes to Antioch. He makes himself at home with the Gentile Christians, hanging out, eating with them hanging out with them in their homes. He's eating with them, sharing meals. But then there are some Christians who come from Jerusalem. Somehow they're identified with the brother of Jesus, who is James. They show up, and Peter starts pulling back. He calls them the circumcision party. And Peter begins to pull back from the Gentile Christians. And not only is it Peter, but it's others that begin to pull away from the Gentile Christians. And Paul calls it, hypocrisy. The circumcision group is what Paul calls them because they believe in Jesus. But you also have to obey the Mosaic law. And they are the grace plus something else equals salvation group. And Paul says that if that is the way that you are living, then you are not in line with the gospel. Because the gospel does not say that you can be saved. The gospel says that you are saved by grace. And Paul tells Peter that Peter is acting like a hypocrite. That Peter is, is as... I mean, think about Peter. Peter has walked with Jesus for three years. It's Peter that preaches the first sermon to the church and the church is started on Pentecost. Peter is as spiritually mature as any human who lived, but Paul reminds Peter of something that he knew better than anyone else, that Peter is a hopeless sinner in need of acceptability, in need of justification, in need of righteousness in the eyes of God, and that's not going to come from Peter. It's going to come from Christ and Christ alone. And to be crucified with Christ is to be united with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That Christ on the cross died to sin, and I'm so united with Him that I am the recipient of what happened on the cross with Jesus. As He died to sin, I too have died to sin and free from the penalty of it. And I'm so united with Jesus as a gift from God, that, that when Christ was resurrected, that I too am, am, am a part of the resurrection, which means that as much as Jesus is cherished and loved and embraced and held onto and honored and exalted by God, those exact same things come to me, but not because of anything that I've done. It's because I trust and put my faith and my life in the hands of God. The most famous psalm in the entire Bible is Psalm 23. And what is the very first verse? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. 
You know what it means to say that God is your shepherd? The Lord is my shepherd. It means that I am trusting my life, my survival. I am putting my life into the hands of God. I'm putting the care of my life into the hands of the shepherd. I am as a sheep, knowing that I can go astray, that that's my nature, as Isaiah tells me and tells us in Isaiah 53, that when I put my hands, my life, everything that I am in the hands of God, my good shepherd, there is not anything in this life that I need. I shall want nothing. And one of the most famous verses to come out of the entire Christian scriptures is found in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, where Paul says, the life that I now live in the body, that's the life that we live as disciples of Jesus. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You know, the problem when we have this grace plus something else equals salvation formula is that it doesn't make us very confident, doesn't give us a lot of confidence in our standing with God. We're always wondering, are we not, did I do enough, did I do enough, did I do I hope so, I hope so, I hope so. And then we find ourselves at the end of this life and there's no confidence. There's, there's no confidence before God. There's, there's no assurances. There's, what there is is being buffeted and torn back and forth by the waves. The life that we live is a life that we live through faith in Christ who not only loved us, but he gave himself. He comes to us as the Christ gift that enables us to come back because we trust and put our dependence upon him and in his hands only. We put our life in his hands and we live this life knowing that we have been saved by grace. And because we realize of that tremendous love that comes into our life, into our world because of that love, we live a life that's worthy of it. And that's where discipleship begins. I want to offer you something to think about this morning as we close. One of the ways that we express faith in God is by being baptized. Being baptized is about, you know, our sins, you know, and baptism is something that happens to us. We are baptized and our sins are washed away. We are aligning our life up. And that's what Jesus did in the River Jordan. He is aligning his life up with the will of God, the kingdom of God in his life before he begins his ministry. That's what's happening. That's what's happening in your baptism. You are trusting God. You are depending on God. Paul will say in Colossians chapter, chapter 2, that when you're baptized, it's an expression of the faith that the power that resurrected Jesus from the grave is the same power that is going to come to bear in your life and is going to raise you up as well. If you have never dedicated your life, put your, your life in the hands of God. If you've, never, if you've never given yourself to the gift, to the gift of having all of those sins removed because Jesus had them nailed to his cross, of experiencing the forgiveness that comes because of the Christ gift and because of the love that, 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 that triggered the whole thing, then I, I'd love to talk to you about that sometime today. Uh, we can talk about it during the singing of this next song. But you know, for those of us who have been living for a long time as disciples of Jesus, knowing even to this day, that we're not our own, that we were bought at a price, that we're not saved because of anything we've done. We've been saved because of love. That God is reaching down to us before we even knew to look up for him for rescue. 
and they were just living a life of, of, of just trying to live worthy of that kind of love and blessed every day and thankful every day for that, guiltless at night, knowing that even when we do fall and, and we will fall, that we can be honest about our sin and confess those sins and talk to God about those sins because of His grace and His love that makes it okay because we know that we are His and He is ours for all of eternity and not just for today, for all of eternity. If that describes you this morning, then come down. Let's talk about it right now during the singing of the song. For the rest of us, let's praise God with all that we have. Let's stand and sing together. <laughs>